0: Another packed week of political news. Joining me to talk about all of it is Global BC's Keith Baltry and the Vancouver Sun's Vaughn Palmer. Later in the show, a deep dive into this week's UBCM meetings with First Vice President Arjun Singh.
1: Accountable to you. This is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford for Kamloops Computer
0: Centre on Radio NL. Good morning, and thank you for tuning in. Pleasure to be joined on the phone by Keith Baldry and Vaughn Palmer. Welcome, gentlemen. Good hey. morning, Shane. Another
1: quiet week in BC. <laughs> to happen all the time.
0: Now. Yeah, I can't remember the last time there was a quiet week. It has been a long, long time.
1: Well, we haven't had very many changes of government. We've had a lot of changes of premiers over the years, but we don't have changes of full changes of government very often, and we don't get one as unusual as this one with this... Bumpy partnership between the Greens and the NDP.
0: Yeah, no kidding. Uh, why do we start off on the UBCM meetings uh, this week, uh, which was always interesting. Uh, topping the agenda was legal marijuana. Uh, high on the agenda, pun intended. Uh, Mike Farnworth launching a, a pretty broad public consultation, local governments, industry, First Nations, and the public. However, it's all got to be wrapped up by November 1st. Uh, there's a lot of heavy lifting here, Keith. Is that just a very, very tight timeline?
2: Well, I think it's a very tight. This is a very complex issue. It is not easy to implement this this type of thing. Uh, people are all over the map. The website was set up uh, where you can you can leave your comments. Already, just inundated with thousands of people uh, commenting and an offering suggestions. Again, uh, sometimes it cross purposes. You've got the mayors at the UBCM. A lot of them, again, they're not on the same page here. Some municipalities. Have no problem with legalized marijuana. Others say no. We don't want that within our municipal boundaries. So, I don't envy Mike Farnworth's job here to navigate these very rocky shoals to implement that something that might seem innocuous and easy to do, but it's far from it. Uh, this is a fundamental change in law, uh, and it's something that uh, society is not all at one with. So, it's uh, November first. I think is rather ambitious time. Uh, Ambitious timeline. Now, that's just for consultation. The actual implementation and decision making is going to take longer than mm. that, of course. But uh, this is a hot button issue that's landed on BC's plate, and I think at the end of the day, Shane, they're gonna we're gonna wait and see what Ontario does with their plan to potentially sell marijuana in government liquor stores, and we'll yeah. see how that goes. And I think that may be the template that BC uses going forward.
0: But that said, uh, Mike Farnworth also mentioned that he doesn't see this as a one size fits all when it comes to a retail model uh-huh. uh, raising and he's done it repeatedly now, raising the idea that in different communities could see different models, which I think sort of further complicates the pot, Vaughn.
1: Yeah, I mean, proponents of legalization, starting with our Prime Minister, uh, say that, well, you know, you look back to alcohol and prohibition didn't work. But, you know, the the, the other side of that is look at all the problems associated with regulation, access, production, distribution, of alcohol look at all the problems in society caused by alcohol so the prime minister has put us on a fast track to go to legalization on canada day next year uh... local government provincial governments are going well you know (laughs) we see a hundred problems associated with this with access i mean there's a long list it took us it's taken society years to sort decades to sort out the problems with legalization of alcohol and some of that still hasn't been sorted out. Mm-hmm. Um, this, this be ready for it next July 1st is no wonder that local governments that are going to deal with the problems and provincial governments that are going to deal with the problems are hesitant.
0: Yeah. Uh, one of the big things about the, this as well, uh, guys, is the fact that uh, local governments have been given sort of a, a little extra boost when it comes to these consultations with a sort of a seat at the table to kind of help craft legislation. But I wonder, uh, while they're excited about it now, how quickly that will sour based on the tight timeline. And then when a push comes to shove, uh, what the province takes or doesn't take from the feedback from local governments, Keith? Well,
2: yeah and one of the other things uh, here is that uh, I don't think any government's going to make any much money off of this thing. I mean that's the experience mm. that uh, down in the states, it did not turn into, down in, I think, Colorado, uh, which legalized, it did not turn into the cash cow that local governments and state governments were hoping for, and that may uh, take uh, sort of the blush off the rose here for, for both levels of government as well. On the other hand, Shane, you know, um, the proliferation of, of medical marijuana dispensaries is sort of taken, um, I think, the edge off, or at least taken baby steps towards legalization, because uh, I'm not sure what the situation is, in Cam was but in Victoria you can walk you don't have to walk more than two blocks in any direction to find a medical marijuana dispensary in which everybody anybody basically can get marijuana. So it's uh, already almost de facto legal within mm-hmm. a lot of municipalities right now. But as Vaughn says there are always problems associated with uh and, and police are starting to sound the the, the uh the siren now. On the issue of uh, impaired driving associated with drugs and marijuana, not just alcohol. So the message on impaired driving is going beyond alcohol to include marijuana now. Uh, and uh, that we didn't see that a couple years ago, and I think that is tied to the prolifer- proliferation of these medical marijuana dispensaries that are popping up all over the place.
0: Yeah, and it's a big issue down in the uh, in the states that have made marijuana legal. Uh, the number of sort of drug-impaired driving has is, is definitely gone up, and I know that uh, there's a big money question here with, as Mike Farnworth mentioned, big upfront costs to deal with this, not the least of which is allocating money to figure out that, uh, that drug-impaired driving situation, Vaughn.
1: Yeah, we've got enough problems with distracted driving, and now we're going to get doped driving. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. And and as you know, the, the tests for impaired uh, with marijuana are not nearly as good. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think the police are right to be warning about this. I, I Keith makes a good point, which I think, you know, Farnworth and Carol James, the finance minister, went down to Washington State mm-hmm. last year and studied it down there, and they came back shaking their head about the problems far outweighing the revenue possibilities, and governments kind of slipped into this and go, well, you know, look at how much money we make off booze so we can do the same with this. Well, first of all, if you did the full cost accounting of the toll that alcohol exacts from society, I don't know how much of a, of a real benefit it is to the provincial treasury, but on this one, it, it's still unexplored territory. The experience south of the border suggests there are a lot more problems associated with it than our government has recognized
0: yeah and the other thing that come out here on the money issue is that uh, again they're going to have to go to the Trudeau government and say hey listen uh, we have these costs are going to have x amount of money involved and we sort of expect you to pay up and i wonder if it's going to be as smooth as all that
2: there would be nothing smooth on <laughs> on any on any level i think i think this is going to be a bureaucratic Uh, nightmare an implementation nightmare and a revenue production nightmare and and one of confusion as you see three levels of government um, uh, and the feds again throwing this sort of little hand grenade in there and then stepping back to see what happens uh, and not necessarily wearing the ownership of some of the the frustrations that will result from this Uh, again it may very well be the provincial government That Where is this the most in terms
0: of problems? Yeah. Uh, Any other big issues at UBCM, guys? Uh, Sort of housing caught my ear. Uh, The other one that caught my attention was the civic politicians banning union and corporate donations, although they may have that forced on them down the road.
1: Well, uh, civic politicians at first balked at the idea and then realized that didn't look very good heading into an election year. So they now, I think, turned around and have asked the provincial government to get going on uh, some controls on uh, union and corporate donations in civic elections. Uh, civic elections are in November of next year, so it's a long way away. But I, I'm hearing that you know it may be difficult to get the legislation drafted and through the House in time for it to be implemented at the local level. The legislative docket for the fall is very crowded over here. We got a new government with its own agenda. I think the new Democrats would like to ban it at the local level, but. When do they get that bill in? February is going to be busy as well when the House sits again. I don't know when local officers and elections B.C. are going to say, we need this legislation in place to implement it in time for the election. But there is actually an implementation problem here. I think we'll be hearing more and more about that with the provincial government as the new Democrats wrestle with this very heavy agenda they have.
0: And interest- I'm not sure
2: how much the NDP is interested in this at the municipal level, because that is one level where... One special interest group, in particular, in certain in, in some key major, er, major urban centers, play has disproportionate influence, uh, and that's through their donations and their and their staffing of political parties. And that is QP, the Public Sector Union, mm. who are employed by municipal governments uh, around the province, and they play an outsized role in Vancouver, Burnaby, my, many of the Metro Canadian Metro Vancouver. Uh, municipalities, where, again, they play a dominant role in elections. And the NDP may may decide to go a little slower on that front, lest they lose control over a number of councils.
0: Yeah. Although interestingly, I remember when they were sort of forecasting the union and corporate donation legislation, uh, it was pitched as a blanket provincial and civic uh, bill. And then, of course, the civic sort of disappeared, when we actually saw that thing on the table. So that was kind of interesting. Uh, they
1: had to take that out, Shane, so they could get in the bit about taxpayer funding of the NDP and <laughs> the provincial parties. You know, they, maybe they just didn't have enough space in the bill. <laughs> both things.
0: Uh, oh, well, last question on this topic. Uh, immediately following the show, the premier will close out the UBCM with a speech. Traditionally, there's been some uh, treats dropped in there. Anything expected this time around?
2: I don't think there's going to be any real uh, big, big announcement there. I'm told it's all about re- resetting the relationship. Is uh, what was put to me between uh, the government and the municipalities. Keep in mind, you know, Christy Clark, uh, the Christy Clark government, increasingly was sort of engaged in a bit of warfare with a number of mm-hmm. municipalities, uh, not least of which is over the, the whole transit and transportation issue. So I think Oregon's going to try to sound a more conciliatory. Tone uh, this morning's speech is at ten o'clock. I think he's uh, going to be mentioning such things as the fentanyl crisis, uh, which is very big uh, around the province, not just uh, Vancouver. Uh, Softwood, I think, will get some attention because that's an, that's an ongoing uh, dispute. So it's uh, again, I don't think there's a uh, one takeaway headline of some sort of spending announcement. It's more, I think, about tone and relationship uh building with uh, with the municipalities although i think there's probably going to be something on um, on uh, attracting uh, high tech to bc and who knows maybe it's this ongoing conversation of whether amazon is ever going <laughs> to relocate up here the
0: amazon lottery Vaughn.
1: housing The provincial government needs the cooperation of local government in order to get the places built. If you're going to increase the housing supply, you need a lot of cooperation from local governments. The liberals had done a survey before they left office showing there were, what, something like 100,000 units of housing in the pipeline needing approval locally, not getting it. So I think if the premier is going to outreach on dealing with the housing affordability issue. He wants to make a partnership with local government to get the pipeline unclogged, um, not pick fights with local government the way Christy Clark did.
0: All right. Let's take a quick break here on Radio NL on Inside Politics. Back on the other side with more from Keith and Vaughn talking about the BC liberal leadership race right here on Radio NL. Radio NL.
1: RadioNL.com. NL. Radio
0: local. First. Keeping you informed from both sides.
1: For Kamloops Computer Centre. This is Radio NL's Inside Politics with Shane Woodford.
0: Welcome back. We're talking to Keith Baldry and Vaughn Palmer. The uh, Last week at this time, there were zero candidates uh, in the B.C. Liberal leadership race. Uh, we now have seven, although maybe it's the one not in the running so far and Todd Stone that pulled a little bit of the rug out from the underneath the others. Uh, Keith, what did you think of his, I assume, strategically timed move uh, enrolling that video on Sunday morning before Diane Watts announced?
2: Yeah, I think uh, Stone is playing this pretty cagely. He's, uh, he's left others to basically fall over themselves on uh, you know, announcing their leadership bid literally within hours of each other. Uh, Wilkinson and, and Mike Bernier doing that uh, earlier this week, and then Michael Lee the day after. So um, the others were sort of competing for attention and competing for media attention, and Stone now, by delaying till at least next week and perhaps even later, uh will have uh the stage all to himself when he makes the announcement, even though it won't be a surprise of course. Uh but it is a very crowded field. I think there'll be eight, maybe even more. I mean Herb while well, the former Liberal M P is musing aloud about running as well, although I'm not mm-hmm. sure he's gonna do that. But uh, it's a crowded field. It'll get less crowded after December 29th when you basically have to go all in with $50,000 to, uh, to the party to, to proceed forward after that. But uh, it's, uh, it's uh, going to be an interesting uh, debate. I don't think they're going to get as much media attention this time as they did in 2011 because they're not electing a new premier. Right. They're electing an opposition leader, which is uh, you know significant levels of uh, interest below electing a premier. Uh,
0: anything jump out of you so far, Vaughn, whether it's the Todd Stone move or anything else?
1: bit of a gang up on Diane Watts. Yeah. Uh, Mike DeYoung sniped at her for, where were you in May when we needed all that help in Surrey where we lost all those ridings? And Andrew Wilkinson in his launch said, you know, the winner of the leadership race has to be ready to go and take on the NDP in the legislature on day one. Well watts doesn't have a seat in the house if she wins the leadership she's then going to have to rustle one up Mm -hmm. so wilkinson's obviously there, targeting the outsiders saying she's not ready to take on the ndp in the house whereas all of the others who have seats in the house or most of them do except for that woman from terrace um
2: are ready to go it sounds like just from what i hear in the back rooms that uh, Wilkinson uh, and Stone and Mike Lee uh, all have some impressive campaign teams yep. uh, put together, both with with caucus members and with some veteran politicos. So this notion that Diane Watts is somehow the front runner, I just don't buy that at all. I think uh, Wilkinson has been quietly uh, organizing for weeks, if not months, about this, and Mike Lee has been uh, a number of people, and Stone obviously has a a number of people working for him as well who have veteran experience so i think those three are very much uh... in the conversation here in terms of who at the moment would uh... would have uh, the lead i don't think any i don't see anybody winning on the first ballot and it's a preferential ballot so uh... second and third choices become important
0: and I want to go back to something Vaughn said about sort of the conditions around Diane Watts not having a seat. Uh, uh, there are some parallels to draw with uh, Christy Clark in the previous leadership race, although I note Keith, uh, you on Twitter pointing out that uh, she was very much an insider back then and not an outsider that Diane Watts is. But still, uh, without a seat and, and kind of uh, being attacked by the other leadership uh, leadership candidates. So there is some parallels there.
1: Well, there are parallels. There, there. It's a fair comment that Christy Clark had only one supporter in caucus, but He's right. She had deep roots in the Liberal Party. Uh, Diane Watts only took out a party membership back in May, so that's it. And another thing that jumped out at me, uh, Shane, is that Wilkinson made a point of lining up support from outside Metro Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Um, he had he had members, MLAs, and endorsements. Uh, Donna Barnett wasn't there when he launched, but because she was busy, but. She supports him. He says he's got the support of Bill Bennett. Uh, he's got uh, Michelle Leaf, uh, sorry, Michelle Stilwell from the island. And um, so, so Wil- Wilkinson has sort of gone and addressed that issue that he's the candidate from the west side of Vancouver and said, well, I've got support around the province and that could make the difference in a leadership where of course a lot of the votes are spread around the province too
0: yeah and a lot of the candidates are really bending over backwards to pitch themselves as being able to sort of bridge that rural urban divide oh you know
1: wilkinson was born in kamloops hey eh? yeah. and he's got a picture of himself uh as a kid with a hunting rifle to prove it
0: that yeah. he's from the hinterland
1: The problem watts well,
2: a big problem diane watts faces is there's not a lot of instances where outsiders win leadership races um, you know, I, I thought Christy Clark was going to win the leadership pretty well from the get go because I'd been to Liberal Party conventions and realized that Christy Clark was sort of a rock star within the BC Liberal Party, and they're the people making the the, the the decision here. It's not the general public; it's a relatively small group of people who have known each other for a long time, unless they're, they're, they've been signed up. So Diane Watts has to sign up members because the existing party members I don't think are going are to support Diane Watts because she has no history with the party. So, you know, Bill Vanderzam won the so-called r- leadership, which, again, I thought was uh, going to be a, a no-brainer for him because I'd been to social credit conventions and realized that if anybody, Bill Vanderzam, again, was a, was a rock star within the Social Credit Party. And those, it's the delegates and the party members making the choice here. And that's a big, steep hill for Diane Watts to climb.
0: But being a Conservative member of Parliament, Keith, does she not get some sort of credentials from the blue side of the Liberal Party? Is she going to get some kind of weight carry just because she is or was or I guess still is a Conservative MP, although she's going to say goodbye to that pretty soon?
2: You'll get some uh, some street cred on that, for sure, from a number of delegates. But so will Michael Lee. Uh, Michael Lee's roots go back to the federal, old Federal Progressive Conservative Party, where he was a, an activist and, a, and an aide to former Justice Minister Kim Campbell. So she's going to be competing with him for those true blue uh, Tory votes. But, uh, yeah, that, that's her constituency. But she has to broaden it, and she has to build on that. And I think that largely will have to come through signing up new members. And as Vaughn says, it's not... This isn't going to be decided in a series. There are 87 ridings, all given 100 Mm -hmm. points, and uh, you get the points in the writing depending on how much uh, proportion of the vote you get, and you've got to get a majority of those 8,700 points to take this
0: home,
1: which makes it very challenging for an outsider.
0: Last word to you on this topic, Vaughn.
1: Uh, Watts's best claim and best credential is that she inherited City Hall in Surrey when Surrey was bitterly left-right polarized the way the province is. And she put together a political party that governed the city for a number of years with support from left and right, and governed, I think, fairly well. So uh, if she's going to emphasize... What credentials she brings to the political arena, I think that's a better claim for her than saying, well, I'm a federal Tory and it's time for a federal Tory to lead this party. Yeah.
0: Uh, Okay, let's take a quick break, get caught up to the news at the bottom of the hour here on Radio NL, and more with Keith Baldry and Vaughn Palmer on Inside Politics right after this. Radio NL. NL. NL.
1: RadioNL.com. Local. First. For Kamloops Computer Centre.
0: You're listening to Inside Politics on Radio NL. Once again, here's Shane Woodford, Welcome back. Thank you for tuning in. We're talking to Keith Baldry and Vaughn Palmer. Guys, uh, a bunch of topics to throw at you here in the final segment, but uh, the anti-money laundering review that was a, a two-year-old report that was finally made public earlier this week raised some pretty serious concerns, uh, seeming to focus on the River Rock Casino. I don't know if you've seen the Sam Cooper story this morning, yes. uh, but holy moly, what a story as it walks you through how casinos are used to launder millions of dollars here in, in British Columbia. But uh, your thoughts on that report and the uh, and the uh, anti-money laundering anti-money laundering review launched by David Eby this week. Well, The,
2: the money is staggering. Uh, that re- 2016 report focused on one month in, in 2015, July 2015, $13.5 million of $20 bills went through the River Rock Casino. <laughs> uh, $20 bills are commonly considered to be the currency of choice in drug transactions. So that seems to be on the face of it just for one month only uh, $13.5 million. You do the math, While well, we're talking in excess of uh, you know, $150 million a year uh, in that casino potentially. Sam Cooper's piece in The Banker Sunday is, is I invite people to go online and read it. It, yep. uh, it is an extraordinary description of how this starts. It starts in, in this particular case. Ah, uh, drug transactions started in China being funneled through a, a, a bank or a, a, an a, an account in uh, Vancouver. uh... there are there are transaction fees for these these uh, these people who set these things up to facilitate the money going through. It turns into chips at the casino uh... where they're given chips for their money and then they catch the chips in and, and walk away with a certified check from the casino so it's uh... it's a great description of how money laundering actually works and so peter german former deputy commissioner of the rcmp and arguably the, the country's foremost expert in money laundering has been given the task to examine what's going on come up with recommendations he's got till march twenty eighteen he's focusing on metro vancouver casinos and it'll be interesting to see what he turns up. But based on that report from 2016 and that story by Sam Cooper, I think there's a lot for him to take a
1: look at.
0: No, absolutely, Vaughn.
1: Yeah, in the, uh, in the second Lethal Weapon movie with Danny Glover and Mel Gibson, <laughs> Joe Pesci plays a mob accountant, and there's a fabulous scene in that movie where he explains how money laundering works. And I remember seeing it, I was thinking of it this morning when I was reading Sam's story, because when you see that scene in the movie, you go, yeah, yeah, well, it's very, very funny, but come on. Well, yeah. <laughs> essentially, today's news story, this actually goes on, and it's been going on here in British Columbia um, The former government says, well, when they got this report, they asked the police to look into it and do something about it, and apparently they did. But uh, we've, I mean, (laughs) how much space does it take to store $13 million worth of $20 bills? Mm. I mean, the armored cars must have been pulling up and hauling away on an hourly basis at that casino for the amount of cash that was funneling through it and were we in british columbia just going great we're glad to have a piece of the action and we're not going to ask too many questions about it or are we going to seriously crack down on it yeah another uh, problem here is is governments get addicted to, to gambling
2: revenue and yeah. uh, and i do think look look the other way even though mike DeYoung it turns out did write to the vc lottery corporation a couple of years ago warning them that that they had to do more to stop this uh, from from occurring but that twenty sixteen report found out that about 80% of the employees at the River Rock Casino really had no idea what money laundering even meant. And so when people showed up with hockey duffel bags full of <laughs> cash, no alarm bells went off. They just said, oh, well, you know, we're bringing in your, the money you've saved up through some hard work uh-huh. and welcome to the casino. Maybe all of us keep duffel bags full of
1: cash in our house, right? <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's, it's crazy. So I guess, Vaughn, how much egg on the face does the former B.C. Liberal government have here, if any?
1: Oh, you know, there's enough egg to go around with former government and enough files yeah. to keep them go- NDP going for a number of years. But when you become government, you end up start wearing your own problems and what have you done for us lately. And I think going forward, uh, it'll be what's government going to do about this? Eby's appointed somebody to come in and do something about it, and the crackdown is what we'll all be looking for is the evidence of a crackdown.
0: Uh, Von, I want to talk to you about the site C secrecy it is a crazy story about uh, the Deloitte uh, report that was put up, uh, then yanked down and posted back up redacted. Now the unredacted versions popped up again and uh, I was out there on the great wide web, uh, and there's no pulling that back, but uh, a lot of problems have sort of resulted from this. So what's going on here?
1: So there's a statement from the utilities commission this morning saying it is not in the public interest that the public have some of the information in that report. That's basically their position. That's why they withheld it from the public. We got a hold of it. We printed it, and it's been spread around. But, and, and, and let's say the key piece of information that they're withholding is the financial details of just how much financial trouble there has been with the main construction contract at Site C. So this is the big contract, uh, excavation, building coffer dams, digging diversion tunnels, and building the dam itself. The one number that jumps out that was suppressed by the Utilities Commission, but it jumps out in the uncensored version of the report, is that they have spent three quarters of the contingency budget on that contract, and only one quarter of the work is done. Mm. So clearly this is the basis for the assumption that the project may fall behind schedule and may go over budget. As I said the Utilities Commission's position is the public is not entitled to that information because it's commercially sensitive and it might hurt Hydro going forward in negotiations but frankly Shane um I don't I don't I don't agree I think the public needs to know those numbers and needs to know a lot more about site C as well.
0: Yeah I would agree uh, Keith
1: well, the, the Deloitte, uh, you know,
2: quite apart from the redaction fuss, uh, the Deloitte, even without that, the Deloitte report paints an alarming financial picture of a project that is going to cost a heck of a lot of money one way or another, whether it's cancelled or whether it goes ahead. Uh, even cancelling it is going to be in, in excess of $3 billion of cost <clears throat> to the taxpayer. Completion may actually hit in excess of 10 perhaps $12 billion over what is... Ought to be a nine billion dollar budget, but <clears throat> there's a lot going on here. It's uh, it's a very difficult decision for the NDP. They're damned if they do, damned if they don't. Pardon the pun. <laughs> <laughs> and it's uh, it's uh, it's uh, I don't envy their task of figuring out what to do here because they do they walk away with a giant hole in the ground that they had to put back together. That's you know three four billion dollars, or do they proceed with a situation where the budget may be. Uh, well in excess of what uh, anybody had contemplated at the very beginning. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's also a fascinating political decision that lies ahead for them.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, final topic, uh, NDP goes on a, a partisan hiring spree. Uh, despite condemning the practice in opposition, uh, Andrew Weaver uh, triggered that and finds it finds it offensive, terribly offensive. Um, is
1: the word he said.
0: Yeah, Weaver so,
1: says it's sickening. Yeah. I mean, it's funny on this one because some of the apologists for the government have said, well, you know, this is just the liberals rattling things around. No, the. The the harshest comment about what the NDP is doing comes from their partner in power sharing, the guy who shares the platform with John Horgan at some of his announcements. It's Weaver that says this is sickening. The liberals only called it hypocritical.
0: Mm. Yeah, so Keith, I guess sort of where I come down in the, on this argument is, I mean, I think that the hypocrisy is is bashing it while you're in opposition, sort of while knowing that you're going to do it once you get into government. Not so much the practice itself.
2: Exactly. No, it's the hypocrisy here. It's it's again. He, The NDP was in opposition for so long. I think they got careless in some of their their attacks. I don't think they ever actually ever expected to be in government. So they thought, well, we'll just say whatever we want. And that whether it was promising not to use taxpayer dollars uh, to fund political parties, which I think is a big hypocritical uh, lie when they're in opposition, or to this one of of attacking the Liberals for for hiring political you know uh, staffers, supporters of the party. Governments do this. Cabinet ministers are going to only want people in their offices who are true loyal uh, lieutenants to their party and to the cause. And that's to be expected. There's nothing wrong with that at all. But for the NDP to condemn these practices on their opposition, I mean, I rolled my eyes when they did it and didn't really pay much attention to it because I thought, well, the minute you get in government, you have to hire these people. This is mm-hmm. how governments function. If, if, if the NDP were to hire a bunch of B.C. liberals to run the government, uh, it wouldn't be an NDP government. So it's the hypocrisy rather than the practice that's the issue here.
0: Yeah. And I'll note that Andrew Weaver did hire his uh, campaign manager to sit in his office currently. So,
1: Yes, the, uh, <laughs> it's, it's what you say about it, really. And look, the other thing is these are not public service positions. These are not ones that are subject to merit hiring and promotion. Although Mike Farmer did try to persuade us this week, uh, Shane, that these people are actually qualified for the jobs they're taking. It just happens that they're new Democrats. I roll my eyes at that one, too.
0: All right. We've got a couple of minutes left, so just to squeak this one in, uh, Gordon Wilson's lawyer has uh, begun the wheels in an out-of-court settlement. Uh, we all know the backstory there, but he's floating $5 million, which I don't think he's going to get in any way, shape, or form on that, Keith.
2: Oh, no, no, no. We don't, we don't have libel judgments uh, or uh, defamation suits like that in Canada. That's sort of something associated with the United States, where they, they're very litigious and throw comes around in courtrooms. We don't do that in, in Canada. I mean, it's rare to see a <coughs> libel settlement in excess of $50,000, I think. I mean, there's been a couple settled here in BC on the political front. There were about $50,000. And maybe if that's the other court settlement, that's probably the figure we're talking about. But having said that, I'm still not convinced that Bruce Ralston and John Horgan are ready to fold.
0: Yeah. And I don't, I don't still not convinced it's ever going to see the inside of a courtroom either, Vaughn.
1: No, I think the government would be wise, Horgan and uh, Ralston would be wise to pay their own legal bills in this and recognize they made a mistake early on and settle it out of court and move on. I, $5 million isn't isn't within the realm of possibility, but I do think that they're probably going to end up having to pay at least Wilson's legal costs and maybe a little bit of damages
0: as well. All right. Uh, gentlemen, always appreciate your insight. Thank you so much. Okay. Goodbye. All right. Keith Baldry and Vaughn Palmer. Always a pleasure talking to both of them uh, on Inside Politics every Friday. We're going to take a quick break here. And on the other side, we're going to take a deep dive from the civic side of the equation on this week's UBCM meetings with uh, the now first vice president, Arjun Singh. Radio NL.
1: RadioNL.com. NL. Radio Local. First.
0: For Camlin's Computer Center. This is Radio NL's Inside Politics. Here's NL News Director, Shane Woodford. Welcome back, and a pleasure to be joined on the phone by the interim mayor of Kamloops, also now the first vice president of the UBCM. Arjun Singh, Arjun, how are you? I'm good, Shane. How are you? Good, um, John Horgan, the premier is about to end the UBCM uh, meetings this week uh, with the big speech. Uh, anything expected from you uh, in this in in what he has to say or no?
3: I don't actually know what he's going to say. It's going to come
0: on, Arjun. You're supposed to have the inside scoop here.
3: I know, but uh, I don't. <laughs>
0: Uh, it's been a busy week. I know that uh, you love this stuff. Uh, you've been uh, up to your neck in it all week long. Uh, the big ones for me, probably marijuana was one of the big agenda items. But uh, uh, what was the biggest items for you and, and what was we, what you thought sort of going in as opposed to what was made progress on, uh, on week's end here?
3: Well, I think, you know, above and beyond marijuana, there's also a lot of talk here about wildfire and uh, sort of extreme natural disaster response. So, you uh, talked a lot about about that with all the various partners and, and parties and uh, and uh, you've got some um, information that the uh, emergency manager of bc and the provincial of government is going to be um, hopefully automating the evacuation registration process a bit better so we won't run into the problems around in that in that regard uh, if it happens again uh, so we talked to the ministers about um, um, opioids and, and uh, discarded needle issues and uh And uh, we did also have a chat about um, housing with uh, Minister Robinson. So uh, really, really, I think uh, a wide variety of topics just came from a resolution session where we were talking about uh, ambulance uh, service in rural areas. So uh, UBCM is a, you know, there's a sort of main items that get a lot of media coverage and there's a lot lot of other stuff that goes on, uh, a huge variety of stuff that goes on uh, beyond that too. So a very full week, a very good week. I think it's it's also very interesting for us to um, be able to sort of... uh, uh break bread with a new provincial government, you know, so sitting so understand what their new priorities are because we haven't had any of the government for uh sixteen years. So it's uh it's it's a new world. Matt Sensor's understanding how they want to work with us and uh, so far it looks uh looks uh like there's lots of opportunity there.
0: All right, let's let's uh, let's start with marijuana because a. I think that is a massive issue and it's only going to get bigger going forward as we approach uh, the deadline of July 1st next year uh, for the Trudeau government to make it legal. Uh, there's a lot of heavy lifting here on the part of municipalities. Uh, I can only begin to think of, of the challenges that lie ahead on that front, but you guys got a seat at the table, so a good first step, but I imagine there's a lot of work ahead here, Arjun.
3: Yeah, a huge amount of work, and, and there's a lot of um, you know, work to be done in this five-week compressed period in terms of the... Uh, engagement with the province and so you know it is good that the uh the local government has a a seat at the table and that was big lobby for by ubcm so it was a a good thing for us to get that um i think that um ultimately you know we have to look at uh things like uh, not not having more revenue or, or costs are downloaded upon upon local government we have to understand also the issues we have to face around zoning and and business license enforcement and, uh, you know, RCMP kind of things that comes to that. So there's a lot of things we have to kind of uh, work on with this. But, I mean, you know, sometimes things happen in a compressed time time frame, and you have to deal with it. And I think we have a good, uh, hopefully, framework for us to kind of figure out, you know, next little while what to do. And then, you know, we'll figure it out. It's going to be legalized next July. So I guess we have no choice but to go through this process and then figure out, Kind of the uh, the kinks in, in the works uh, if they happen after uh, July, but uh, you know, no. I mean, as much as possible, we'll get it done. I think before the uh, legalization deadline.
0: Yeah, let's talk a little bit about the seat at the table in, in in this marijuana situation because I know that the relationship between municipal governments and the province hasn't always been the best in the past, but uh, it took a, a bit of a step forward with the fact that you guys are going to have more of a voice in this process and I wonder what kind of precedent that sets and uh, not just marijuana but other issues and the one that immediately springs to mind, uh, you mentioned downloaded cost would be the negotiation of the RCMP contract, which I, I know is a ways away, but if you've been allowed at the seat at the Table with marijuana should you not be allowed to seat at the table on these other big issues as well?
3: Well, I mean, yeah, I've been on the UBC board chain for for five years, and um, I've noticed that uh, the provincial government doesn't want to work with local government, and we don't do that thing collaboratively. Uh, it comes back to bite the province pretty good. So, I think ultimately, you know, to have all of us working together uh, creates better outcomes for everybody. Um, and um, you know, sometimes a a uh, provincial federal government can be a little bit kind of like. Uh, you know, Big brotherish, or, like, you know, um, uh, it's not very helpful when that happens because um, we represent people, you know, on the ground all across the province and all across the country, and uh, certainly if if we're not sort of happy with what's going on or not feeling included, uh, it comes back, I think, on the on a bunch of government in terms of the dollar box or other things. So uh, certainly I think it's a very good step that the uh, government has made now in terms of working with us on this file, and I, and I hope to uh, continue. I mean, I think it's... It, it's uh, maybe slower in the kind of initial phases, but then the legislation is just not that much better, and, you know, we kind of get more lasting solutions to everything. So, you know, it, it just doesn't pay for us to sort of not to be at the table because, you know, it, it, it it's not a very good outcome for the folks who don't include us.
0: Yeah. Uh, let's talk about housing and it's an interesting issue that, that I think is, is now province wide and a good example is the relationship between the Lower Mainland and, and now Kamloops because as you know, and, and people listening uh, and probably know locally, is that we've seen an influx of Lower Mainlanders fleeing Vancouver, sort of the affordability refugees, we call them, and we're seeing a ton of people moving into Kamloops as well as Kelowna and other areas. Uh, and that's going to create housing challenges uh, or that are going to be on top of existing ones. So you met with the Selina uh, how big an issue is this? Uh, did you hear anything from the minister that's going to address all these all these situations?
3: Well, we're we're really focused on the sort of lower income affordable housing situations, and I think you know what happens when people do move to a place like you know, campus or Corner from the Lower Mainland. Um, you know, everybody gets kind of pushed down, and some folks get pushed down into homelessness, uh, which is which is really unfortunate. So uh, there is a, I think what two thousand modular units the province is getting built or has already other uh, the Camlips is in line for uh, a number of those and we're really working hard to make sure we secure some of those as kind of a short term solution. And then obviously the whole affordability thing uh and the whole housing thing as as a whole, um the UBCM has a working group that's working on um, suggestions and solutions for that problem in conjunction with uh, the Minister of Uh Municipal Affairs Housing. So I mean I think it it's really a, a big, big issue. Uh it's as you just lower mainland Obviously, as you pointed out, this show all across the province. It's becoming more and more so, and um, we have to really attack it. But right now, we're really looking at, from cameras' perspective, looking at the sort of, you know, how do we get people housed from homelessness and supported in in that way.
0: Yeah, uh, I want to squeeze another topic in here before we run out of time, and uh, and uh, that is the uh, the banning of union and corporate donations. Which we know how that played out provincially. Uh, there was an issue that was dealt with at UBCM uh, on on that topic, and, and it's especially uh, pertinent considering we're going into uh, a full civic election next year. Of course, a by election here in Kamloops tomorrow. But uh, what was the end result of that?
3: Well, I think that there, there's certainly desire from folks in local government the same regulations apply that we should have you no know, corporate and union donation ban we should have limits we, there we've done all that already so we have do have some now some some limits as to what we can spend and more disclosure uh in, in the regulations we have right now um i you know i have no problem with uh certainly making it uh you know more sort of um accessible to all to kind of get involved with you know supporting uh, a people of government and not having any uh, people have undue influence so I'm supportive of it. I think that in 2018 is a pretty short timeline, but you know, let's let's, let's take some time to get it right, make sure we're doing it right, and, and move in that direction.
0: So, just to clarify, you, you you're you're not thinking that, that, that something's going to be in place by the time we get to the 2018 elections, so?
3: then? Uh, the minister to said. I mean, it, it's a pretty tight timeline. I think, I think there may be an effort to make that happen, but I wouldn't necessarily expect exactly that it's it's a done deal for 2018. I think that's going to be, you know, a discussion over the next a you know, few months, and then we'll see what happens.
0: Okay. Uh, Arjun, as you know, uh, local uh, by-elections here tomorrow, uh, we got 22 candidates for council, six for mayor. Uh, a lot of those people are going to go home unhappy with only three spots to win, but uh, a final thought uh, just from you on, on what's about to play out tomorrow.
3: Um, everybody should be happy that they ran and put their name forward and were involved in the democratic process. I'm looking forward to welcoming uh, three new colleagues, That's one, maybe one returning colleague we don't know yet, uh, and we'll have to see... Uh, how it plays out, but I think it's going to be very, I mean, Canvas Council is an amazing place to work, and it's an amazing place to serve. Our culture is very strong, and we, we sort of encourage people to come in, and I think it's going to be fine.
0: I talked to a number of candidates uh, yesterday, and I was surprised, uh, you know, Gerald Watson, Glenn Hilkey, a couple of the other ones, all without, you know, talking to each other, telling me that they've never run into a more angry electorate th- than they have in this case, whether it's the Daily News building, the the conve- or the, the Art Center vote, uh, there seems to be, or Ajax, it seems to be a number of issues that people are really upset about. Does that surprise you or no? Um,
3: I, I, I haven't really heard that myself. I mean, I've heard a little bit of that. I guess election will tell. I mean, if some folks who election... Election who are sort of coming against council and, and sort of, you know, talking about people are upset and want to change. If they get elected, I think that that's a bit of a sign for us. Um, if they don't, uh, people who are more supportive of what we've been doing and more happy with the it, general tenor of things they've elected, that's probably also a sign. So it, it's up to tomorrow to see kind of what happens there.
0: All right. Arjun, always a pleasure. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Shane. Take care. That's Kamloops Interim Mayor Arjun Singh, also now the first Vice President of the UBCM. Uh, Pleasure to talk to everybody on the show today. Thank you for listening, and we'll be uh, joining you again right here on Radio NL next week on Inside Politics. Local. First. CHNL. AM610 in Kamloops.
1: RadioNL.com. The Valley's first choice for local news.